Our text is Acts 13, the entire chapter this morning, although I'm going to read to you a complimentary text that I'll also bring up at some point in the sermon. It's Paul's testimony in Galatians 1 and into Galatians 2. So if you want to follow along, that's where I'm going to read from. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and he who called me and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcision, uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Acts 13 represents a very big day in the life of the early church. You remember Jesus' words at the beginning of our study through Acts in chapter 1 and verse 8. Here they are. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that in our study, we've spent the first seven chapters in Jerusalem. Watching the gospel go forth daily by the apostles outside of the temple and in many different homes of the church members. And the church is just growing by the thousands before God providentially uses persecution to scatter his people in chapter 8. Out into the regions with the gospel to Judea and Samaria. And it is an eternal tribute to the mercy of our God that the same Saul whose persecution of the church instigated its scattering in chapter 8 is now in chapter 13, the first to be called by the Spirit out of a local church to bear witness for Jesus to the greater, broader Gentile world. That's what this text is this morning. This text is the church's first effort to send its own to the unreached nations to bear witness for Jesus. So this text represents a very special day in the life of the church that really church that really sets the course for the remainder of this book. And not just for the remainder of this book, but in reality, it's set the course for the last 1900 plus years of church history. This is the Spirit of God calling the members of local churches to be sent by those churches to the nations to bear witness that Jesus has come and that he's atoned for sin in his death on the cross and that he's risen from the dead and that he's Lord of heaven and earth and that all who believe in him will be saved. We've had our appetites wet for this moment for a while now because we know from the beginning and back into the gospel and even back into the Old Testament all along we've known that the mission has always been the gospel to the nations but lately we've had our appetites wet because we've had small tastes of it with the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in the household of Cornelius and the church being established most recently in Antioch, predominantly a Gentile city. But Luke most definitely wants us to see this, Acts 13, as the commissioning point for stage three of the Acts 1-8 delineation of the Great Commission. The Spirit calling the church fasting and praying and sending and the gospel going forth to the nations. Now, there's a lot of debate today when it comes to missions, and I'm sure that Heather's been on the receiving end of it as to whether or not it's a better use of resources to continue to send American missionaries to foreign fields to minister in different cultures and in different languages with about 10,000 other cultural barriers or whether it's time to shift gears and just invest in short-term missions and the training of, of nationals for about a third of the cost. And if you want to have that conversation, then it's fine, it's healthy, it's always good to be ref refining our processes and our policies. But in the conversation, there are two non-negotiables that our collective wisdom can never deny or override. And one of those is that Jesus himself 
commissioned the church in every generation and on every continent until the end of the age to go and to make disciples of all the nations. And our text today reminds us that doesn't mean go and find your own kind on other continents and make disciples of them and build churches only with them. Heather, I loved that in your presentation, you're not just hanging out with all the white people in Honduras. Because the Great Commission is go and display the wisdom and the glory of God by going to a foreign people that don't look like you or talk like you or think like you and proclaim among them that Jesus is Lord over all. And that Jesus unites in himself and on the basis of his death and his resurrection, all who believe in him from all nations into one new people who will exist in unity as one redeemed people for all of eternity. So however you think missions should be done or however we collectively seek to be the wisest stewards of the resources that God entrusts to us, if it only ever looks like Christ fellowship sending money and not people to the nations of unreached peoples, we are not obeying Jesus' command to go. And I'm just not sure that the argument that the nations have come to us is enough to override the command to go. It remains an inescapable reality until the end of the age that Jesus has commissioned his church to go. And he has promised that in our going all the way to the end of the age that he will always go and be with us. So that we can be confident that the work of the Spirit in the life of a church body at every given time will always be calling from its own members to go and to bear witness for Jesus where Jesus himself is seeking to build his church. Which brings us to the second reality that the church can never escape in strategizing how best to reach the nation. So first it's Jesus commissions us to go always. Second, the Spirit calls whom he wills to go. You see that clearly in our text today. It's verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And I love it because it is the Spirit speaking to the church through its leaders. It's not Paul and Barnabas saying, we're called, we know it, we're out of here, good luck. It's bombardment of affirmation on all sides. So that it's joyful to lose people to the gospel going forward rather than awkward and devastating. We'll come back to that and fill that in a little bit more in a bit. 
Any perspective on missions that you have or any policy on missions that Christ Fellowship ever has must never be so restrictive as to tempt us to deny either of those two realities. Jesus commissions us to go, and the Spirit calls whom he wills to fulfill the mission of Jesus. And all of that is just affirmation after affirmation that Jesus is doing what he said he would do in Matthew 16 and verse 18. He's building his church. So he knows for whom he has died from all nations and not a drop of his blood will have been shed in vain, which means that Jesus is not passive in his pursuit of his own. He is absolutely in the offensive. And not one for whom he died will be unreached at the end of the age because the age will not end until the full number of the redeemed from all nations are reached with the news of his saving grace toward them. And not only is that a push to go, but it's also a challenge. Think about this. It's also a challenge that if Christians of all nations are commissioned always to go to the nations, and that doesn't mean go and reach your own people in every nation, then God's intention is for his glory to be displayed here on earth at all times by diversity in our churches. Which is wonderfully represented in our text in verse 1. As there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, who was, we know, a Levite from Cyprus. Simeon, who was called Niger, who was African. Lucius of Cyrene, who was from North Africa. Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul, who we know, obviously, was a Benjamite from Tarsus in Cilicia. So in all fronts of what we've talked about already this morning, Christ Fellowship, we have something to shoot for. Because in the debate between funding missions and going ourselves, we presently do neither. And in relation to diversity, just look around. We are predominantly the same color, the same age, and the same tax bracket. And if 20 to 30-year-old white couples with backgrounds in fundamentalism was, is what God intends Christ's fellowship to always be, then it will be for the display of his glory in our community and for all of eternity. But if that's the case, I don't think we ever have the right to draw that conclusion on our own and give up the effort to reach our incredibly diverse community. Like I found myself tempted to do on Friday, while talking with another pastor, what's your church like, he's asking. I describe it to him. He's kind of looking at me. And involuntarily, out of my mouth, it's just like, well, it just seems to be our niche. 20 to 30-year-old white couples with backgrounds in fundamentalism. And as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, what are you saying? You're, you're giving yourself and your church a bogus excuse and a free pass to just continue to gravitate towards the people that we're most comfortable with and least threatened by while all around us right under our nose. People go unreached with 
the gospel, and that will be to our shame for having so little faith and such a short-sighted view of the gospel. So God, help us to have an eye for the nations abroad that expresses itself here in both money and people being sent. And God, help those of us who remain here to never be content to only reach one segment of our incredibly diverse culture, which means God also help us to never enshrine one segment of our culture's application of a culture transcending and transforming gospel. Which means if we are ever going to be more than 20-somethings with backgrounds in fundamentalism, then some of our preferences are going to have to be laid aside and put in their proper place of submission under the gospel. And I love the church at Antioch because they are in every way a model to us as a diverse, funding, sending church. In their diversity, they send aid to the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem. And now they're sending the very guys to the Gentiles who had been their primary teachers over the past year. And it happens in the context, it says here, of them worshiping and fasting and praying together, which just screams of a church body engaging in deep corporate communion with the triune God whose voice then they were able to distinguish when he said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And when they send them off, they're able to do so with hands of support and blessing being laid on them and with prayers and thanksgiving for them. And that picture is just, it's a breath of fresh air from having to strategize ways behind closed doors to put transitions that don't make sense and that don't take place in unity and through prayer and fasting in the best light. This is the way it ought to be done. If you combine this text, one of the reasons I read Galatians 2 if you combine this text with Galatians 2, the, the fuller story here, if I can give you my, my take on it, and you, you just had to put passages together to try to have your take on just filling out the details of the story. But my take is, in combination with Galatians 2, the fuller story is the church at Antioch sends Barnabas and Saul to Jerusalem to deliver, you remember, famine comes, church in Jerusalem is devastated. They send Barnabas and Saul to Jerusalem with whatever aid they accumulated for that church. We know from Galatians 2 that while Barnabas and Saul are there, they meet with the elders of the church at Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John. They're rehearsing to Peter, James, and John all that God had used them to do among the Gentiles. And it's my take is it's right there in that meeting that the elders of the church at Jerusalem are the first to get the sense that God was calling Barnabas and Saul to a broader ministry to the Gentiles. So Barnabas and Saul return from Jerusalem to Antioch. They get together with the other three elders who are named in Acts chapter 13 and verse 
one, they're rehearsing what happened in Jerusalem, including the perception among the elders there that God's hand was potentially upon them for a broader ministry. And that takes us to our text this morning that says those five leaders together, they began to pray and they began to, to, to fast. I'll just read one verse over again to give some support for that take. It's Galatians 2 and verse 9 that told us, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they return the Elders at Antioch begin to investigate this. And in verse 3, we're told that Barnabas and Paul are sent with full blessing, full affirmation that they were doing the will of God. And for the next three years, the church at Antioch continues on without Barnabas and Saul. And the next two chapters trace their steps all the way to Derby and and back. And the first place that our text lands them and us with them this morning is the island of Cyprus. It's here that not only are we introduced to the pattern that they would set and follow in their travels of going to, to a new place and finding and attending and teaching in the local synagogues, we also learn here that they've taken John Mark with them as their helper. We're not told in our text how long their stay on the island is. The account is preserved for us, I think, to emphasize two things that happen there. One is the conversion of the governor, Sergius Paulus. And the other related one is their interaction with Elymas, who's also named Bar-Jesus, who is labeled here as a false prophet or a sorcerer just happens to be the attendant to the governor. He's also the guy that tries to prevent Sergius Paulus from being converted and miserably fails. And Luke is careful to make clear that the decisive factor between Bar-Jesus' interference and Paul and Barnabas' witness is not Paul and Barnabas speaking louder or more eloquently. Verse 9 marks Clearly, Paul is being filled with the Holy Spirit in his witness to the governor and in his rebuke of the false prophet. As he refers to him as a son of the devil instead of what his name, Bar-Jesus, implies, son of the Savior. The Spirit's condemning charge against Elymas comes directly from Isaiah 40 and verse 3 where it says of a true prophet a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god and this false prophet is charged by the spirit with making crooked the straight paths of the lord and paul tells him here the hand of the lord is against you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time and the text says that a mist and a darkness falls upon him and that's just what god uses their gospel witness and the spirit's rebuke of the false prophets, just what God uses to be the crucial means of Sergius Paulus' con conversion. 
So when they leave the island, there is a gospel presence on there. And if you just track the book of Acts, Barnabas and Mark will return and build upon that in a few short years. The next place that the text lands them takes up the remainder of the chapter. Because when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Antioch of Pisidia, which is a different Antioch than the church that just sent them at the beginning of our our chapter, when they land there, they do what they have set out to do. They find and attend the local synagogue, and they're given the opportunity by the leaders of the synagogue to give the sermon, which I just want to be clear, just doesn't happen (laughs) willy-nilly any more than it would happen here. It actually did happen to me once. I showed up at a church, and the pastor said, Hey, brother, you want to preach this morning? And I remember the day clearly. didn't iron my shirt. A button was missing. I was, like, on vacation in Florida. had met the guy for about five minutes one time, and he asked me to speak, and I was a rep for Maranatha at the time. And any of you that have done the repping thing, you have, like, five sermons that you could preach the second you wake up from your sleep because you preach them so much. So I was able to speak that morning, and after church, the pastor said, thanks, brother. I didn't have a clue what I was going to say to the congregation that morning. That didn't happen here. Paul was prepared to speak, and the synagogue leaders were prepared for him to speak. And speak he did gloriously. His sermon reads a lot like Paul's, or like Peter's and and Stephen's sermons that we've already looked over in the first 12 chapters. It's a rehearsal of God's work of grace among his people in the past. And I, I love it because when you read verse 17 through verse 22, God is the subject of every sentence. God chose our father's God made the people great during their stay in Egypt. God led them out of Egypt. God put up with them in the wilderness. God destroyed seven nations in Canaan. God gave them the land as an inheritance. God gave them judges until they asked for a king. And then God gave them Saul. And God removed Saul and gave them David to be their king. And it's at the point when he brings up David. Paul slows down a little bit and begins to quote scripture in reference to God's promises to David. In verse 23, he basically skips a thousand years of Israel's history, and he jumps to Jesus as David's true offspring and Israel's only Savior. It's at this point that the sermon gets very personal. As Paul, in verse 26, addresses those in attendance as his brothers, saying, to us, this message of salvation has been sent. And he takes them back just a short time ago in their history to Jerusalem, where the same law and the same prophets that were read among them were read in Jerusalem and denied to be referring to Jesus and not only denied there to be referring to Jesus, but were also fulfilled at the same time by those who claim the greatest loyalty to the scriptures in nailing their Messiah to a cross and laying his dead body in a tomb. But just like Peter and Stephen so powerfully proclaimed in their sermons, after describing the human sin of rejecting the Christ and nailing him to the cross. So Paul powerfully, in verse 30, says, but 
God raised him up. Just like Psalm 2 and Psalm 16, which is what he quotes here, said he would. Therefore, verse 38 and verse 39, he calls his hearers to believe in Jesus for justification and forgiveness of sin. And he warns them, and I warn you against scoffing like their fathers before them scoffed. The reaction among the people is overwhelming. They beg Paul and Barnabas to come back the next Sabbath. And when they do, in verse 44, we're told that the whole city is gathered to hear the word. When the next Sabbath comes, it doesn't take long before the atmosphere of, of hunger and openness from the previous week is replaced with tension, eventually chaos. As the Jews are filled with jealousy at the sight of the crowd so that they begin to publicly contradict the words of Paul and Barnabas in verse 46 just stuns the entire crowd. As Paul and Barnabas quote Isaiah 49.6 and say to the Jews, since you, parentheses, in your pride and in your rejection of Jesus, since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. Because, Isaiah 49.6, the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light to the nations that you may bring Salvation to the ends of the earth. And at the sound of those words, the Jews are enraged against Paul and Barnabas. And they incite persecution against them, forcing them to leave the island. But here is just the glory of God's purpose at work. Because the same sound, the same words that fill the Jews with rage against these two heralds of the gospel simultaneously fills the Gentiles in attendance with joy. Listen to verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, referring to, we turn to the Gentiles and I've made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48 says, the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And even after Paul and Barnabas are driven from their midst, verse 52, our chapter ends once again with the disciples being filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. the same gospel fills some with rage it fills others with joy well our hope is always joy through reception I think Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2 are a good note on which to end because it very helpfully distinguishes hope from goal Hope always being reception and joy, but goal being unworthy, insufficient people spreading the fragrance 
of a worthy and sufficient God to the ends of the earth. So listen to these words as we close. It's Paul in 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Let's pray.